There are two words spoken about 300 times a day in our home by our daughter Elizabeth. These two words are said in many homes by many people around the world, especially by many children around the world. And those two words are, I'm hungry. Actually, those two words are, I'm hungry. Now, as tiresome as it can be for my wife and me to hear those words spoken over and over and over and over again, especially right after we finished eating dinner, they're actually helpful and important words. And they're words that my wife and I sometimes have to remind ourselves we are glad to hear come from Elizabeth's mouth. Because we know that Elizabeth's hunger is a good thing. It means that she is growing and her body and mind are aware of her need for food. Now that may seem like a strangeful thing for us to be grateful for. But we have an important reason. You see, in the first few weeks after Elizabeth was born, she did not eat very much. As surprising as it might be for those who know her now, she was very quiet and a subdued baby. She slept a lot. In fact, she slept too much. During one of our early check-ins with her doctor, we found out that Elizabeth was not gaining weight like she should. She was not growing, and the reason was because she wasn't eating enough. We didn't realize that she wasn't eating enough, though, because she wasn't letting us know. Her body wasn't feeling hunger like a newborn baby's body should. And that's why she slept so much. She didn't have that sensation of hunger inside of her that would make her cry when she needed to be fed. Of course, we were doing regular feedings, but even then she would fall asleep while she was eating. So for a few weeks, we had to schedule extra feeding times for Elizabeth and establish some new routines for her. Eventually, Elizabeth's body became aware of her need for food. She felt hunger. And ever since, she has not stopped letting us know. In his book, For the Life of the World, Alexander Schmemann makes the profound observation that as humans, we are not merely human beings, but in our essence, we are what he calls human adorans. His point are that we are not merely living, operating beings that simply function here on earth, but rather we are desiring beings, and we are driven by our desires. Thus, we need to understand the central role that desire plays in our lives, both physically and spiritually. Let's think about the physical side of this for a moment. One of the most fundamental desires we experience as humans is hunger. From the moment we are out of the womb, we have an innate hunger for food, or at least we're supposed to. This hunger that we have for food is essential to our life, and it's essential to our growth. It is a desire that directs us toward a means of life and sustenance. If we do not feel or feed that hunger, it will eventually lead to our detriment. Therefore, hunger is a good thing. It helps keep us alive. It helps us function. 
Another aspect of hunger is that it shows we are not self-sufficient beings. We cannot survive on our own, nor can we function in complete isolation. We need something outside of ourselves for survival. We need to eat. We need to drink if we are to keep on living. And those things come to us externally to satiate an internal desire and need. If hunger tells us that we need something outside of ourselves to, to survive physically, then it also shows that we need something outside of ourselves spiritually. If we need physical nourishment for our survival, then we also need spiritual nourishment. We are not self-sufficient. Physical hunger, therefore, reminds us of our physical needs and our spiritual needs. In fact, the physical and the spiritual are so much more intertwined than we often give them credit. As physical beings, God communicates the spiritual to us through the physical. He uses physical things, even our physical desires, to draw us to himself. In certain movements of Christianity, it can be thought that the goal of Christian faith is to transcend or to eradicate physical desire, as if physical desire is something evil within itself. Practices of self-denial like fasting or abstinence are seen as ways of rejecting the flesh in order to transcend the world and achieve spiritual wholeness. This attitude see seeks to disentangle physical desire with, phys with spiritual desire and separate them from one another. But such a mentality is not fruitful to the way that God has made us. Our goal as Christians is not to overcome physical, to desire, uh, physical desire, but rather to align our physical desires with our spiritual desire. When we do this, the two work together to intensify our desire for God. Thus, Christian practices like fasting or sexual abstinence are not ways of restraining or dampening physical desire, but instead they are ways of animating our desires so that we might orient them in service to God. In other words, when we fast or abstain from something, we become more aware of our desire. And as we are aware of it, we seek to allow that desire to move us closer to God rather than to satiate it on our own terms. The problem, however, is that we tend to want instant gratification of desire. Therefore, our desires go unchecked, and we settle for false means of satisfaction. This is a disposition known as consumerism. We often hear the word consumerism used to describe our culture today. Certainly, consumerism describes our cultural disposition but we must also acknowledge it is a spiritual disposition too. Consumerism is a way of engaging and interacting with the world. It is characterized by indulgence and spurred by unconstrained passion. It thrives on consumers having intense desire for material goods, yet also having constant dissatisfaction with them. For example, in a consumeristic culture, Materials are not hoarded, they are used up. Consumers do not cling to things, at least not for long, before they discard them 
to buy new things, other things, often newer versions of the things they already own. Consumers seek to replace rather than to restore because consumerism cultivates restlessness in our spirits. It stokes a sense of urgency driven by the need to feel immediate and continual satiation of desire. But the problem, as mentioned before, is that consumerism thrives on the consumer not being content. It keeps the consumer in, con in the constant state of want. And eventually, we are all left singing the song of Mick Jagger. I can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> Consumerism is ultimately an enslavement of the soul because it makes consumers addicts to the act of consuming itself. They treat the things of the world as objects for personal pleasure and see the world as an end in itself. Thus, the things of the world lose all value because only in God do they actually have worth in life. Consumers become unaware of how their desires drive their behaviors and how they exploit the world for personal, albeit temporary, pleasure. It is no surprise then that gluttony, envy, alcoholism, drug abuse, and sexual addictions characterize a consumeristic culture. Consumers cannot be satisfied because they seek contentment in temporary things. As opposed to consumerism, St. Augustine of Hippo says that Christians are to embody rightly ordered love. Rightly ordered love is a way of ordering desire so that it rests first and foremost in the only thing that is eternal and therefore the only thing that can bring eternal satisfaction, God himself. Rightly ordered love is characterized by patience, simplicity, Temperance or moderation, restraint, chastity, and self-control. It commits to transformation of the passions through seasons of fasting, abstinence, and prayer. When instant gratification of desire is denied, desire actually increases. This intensifying of physical urges should then bring spiritual desire into focus. As the Christian embraces the intense desire of the body and the spirit, she turns towards God in contemplation and prayer. He seeks satisfaction in means of participation in God, who is the one eternal and supreme good, rather than in temporal lesser goods. Through this participation in God via prayer and contemplation, desire is refined and the world is rendered back to the person as a gift. And this is a gift that we receive. It is not an object to be used for our personal pleasure. What once were self-indulgent desires ultimately are transformed in the self-giving acts of love, justice, empathy, and compassion. True satisfaction is therefore not something we as humans can ever contrive for ourselves Rather, it is a gift that must be received from God, the only one who is able to give good gifts in the first place. As many of you know, and as we have heard, we are now one, se one week into the season of the church calendar called Lent. The 40 days of Lent are a purpose time of dedication, devotion, penitence, confession, and repentance in the church. 
The season reminds us, as Origen once wrote, that the fruits worthy of conversion are displayed in the change of conduct and habits. So during the season of Lent, we commit ourselves more fully to God, recognizing our brokenness and need for a Savior. We pray and consider how God is asking us to participate in the process of transformation, putting to death the things of self so that we might experience the new life that Christ brings. As the author Evelyn Wall once reflected, many of us do not realize what a hold our comforts have on us until we give them up. Lenten abstinence means trying to give some of them up as an act of love to God. When we fast, we turn to God in prayer, seeking our desires to ultimately and fully rest in Him. And when we cease from fasting, we give thanks to God for the gifts He has provided us in this life that help sustain us. Basically, Lent is a time for the intentional examination and reorientation of desire. During this season, the church dedicates itself to practices such as almsgiving, prayer, and fasting as means of opening ourselves to God and receiving his grace and love. As you'll notice, these three historic practices of Lent, almsgiving, prayer, fasting, are also the practices that Jesus mentions in Matthew chapter 6. There must be something important to them then. Let's turn our attention to the gospel text for a few moments as we reflect on this. So as you may be aware, Matthew 6 is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He speaks these words right after admonishing his listeners in chapter 5 to love their enemies, to pray for those who persecute them, and to be perfect as their heavenly Father is perfect. He then offers a stark warning to his listeners, telling them to be careful about practicing their piety or their righteousness before others, for in doing so they will receive no reward from their Father in heaven. And then he issues another command that reflects life and love in a rightly ordered way. Holy habits are to be done in secret, he says. Because the secret things we do matter and are seen by God the Father. As previously mentioned in this passage, Jesus particularly points out the holy habits of almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Three practices that require self-denial, a giving up of the self, or at least they should. These three practices also relate to three basic areas of life, finances, relationships, and food. The practices of almsgiving, prayer, and fasting call us, then, to examine our attachments to these three areas of life. Do we understand them and hold them as gifts from God, or do we use them as a means of self-indulgence? Jesus' commands in Matthew 6 are an invitation to examine why we do the things we do, to consider the desires that drive our behaviors. Do we fast, pray, give money, preach, teach, or post on social media to be seen as righteous before others? Do we seek to be impressive, 
or to astound others with our displays of spiritual activism? Do we backbite or slander others? Do we seek our own good at the expense of others? This is not the way. Instead, the disciplines of almsgiving, prayer, and fasting are meant to help us grow in perfect love as they point us to the very self-giving nature of Christ. By practicing them in secret, we learn to do them with the right motives, with the right love. They are meant to animate our desires and properly direct them, including our hunger for human praise and admiration. Ultimately, these practices are to lead us into deeper attachment to God and to others. As the Holy Spirit awakens us to our disordered desires and does the work of refining them. This is why Jesus urges us to be charitable. He urges us to pray and he urges us to fast in secret. For in doing so, we receive a heavenly reward. The grace of God. And as we've received God's grace, we find that we are restored in the image of Christ. As the virtues of faith, hope, and charity are produced in us. Heavenly treasures that cannot be shaken, that cannot be destroyed. And so Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 19-21 serve as both a warning and a directive for us. They warn us of the danger of losing proper perspective as they remind us to keep the true end in mind. Restoration in the perfect image of Jesus Christ. Even good spiritual practices such as giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting can become harmful when separated from their true heavenly purposes. So we seek not to find our desires filled by the temporary things of this world, but instead find our desires consumed by the eternal things of heaven. For our true treasure is in heaven. God himself, the one who seeks constantly to give good gifts. So we must orient our hearts toward him. Even though it wasn't read, I find it interesting that Jesus concludes his teaching in Matthew 6 with a focus on worry. He offers a simple and direct message. Do not worry about what you will eat or drink or wear. Trust God to provide for your every need. God who feeds the birds of the air and clothes the flowers of the field will take care of you. Have faith in his goodness and believe in the one who has revealed himself to be a charitable God. Do not worry about your needs or seek to satisfy them with the things of the world. Instead, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and you will be satisfied. Jesus' final words here in Matthew 6 are an echo of a statement he made in the previous chapter, particularly in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. Do you hear the echo there? A hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does he mean by that? 
how do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, there's a lot that we could and probably should unpack here, but I just want to offer this thought. Sometimes I think we treat righteousness only as an aspirational idea, as if it is a vague quality or characteristic that we must try to achieve. I think that's not the best approach, actually. Righteousness is not some aspirational concept that we have to figure out. Rather, we understand righteousness as it is embodied in a person, Jesus Christ. So to hunger and thirst for righteousness is to hunger and thirst for Jesus. For it is in him and only him that we are filled. And so once again, we acknowledge that as humans, we are passionate creatures and our desires seek satisfaction. The desires we feel remind us that we are not self-sufficient beings. We require something outside of ourselves to satisfy our longings. This is true both physically and spiritually. But too often we think that physical satisfaction, be it food, sex, material items, or other means of self-gratification, will ease our appetites. But in truth, when we set our desire on these lesser things, our love becomes disordered and we are left in constant restlessness and devastation. Our hearts become hardened to spiritual realities because they are turned inward upon themselves. And so we need the Holy Spirit to come and order our desires, to awaken us through our physical desires to our spiritual need for the food that does not perish but gives life. We need to be made aware of our hunger. When my daughter Elizabeth was not growing like she should because she was not eating enough, we had to establish new routines for her in order to help her know her need for food and nourishment. We had to stoke her desire. In the same way, we are often ignorant of our need for spiritual food. We fall asleep. We grow hardened. But this is one of the reasons why we regularly come to worship and why we continually submit to means of grace like prayer, scripture reading, fasting, almsgiving, and works of mercy. This is why in Lent we take time for examination, repentance, and prayer as we are about to do here in just a couple of moments. Through these practices, God encounters us through the Holy Spirit and makes us aware of our need for him. This is also one of the reasons why in every week, every week in worship, we come to the table. At the table, God communicates the spiritual to us through the physical. We are fed by grace. We are fed by the grace of God through the physical means of food which God uses to draw us spiritually into himself. We are given the bread of life, the sacramental presence of Jesus Christ, the one who was sent from heaven so that we might have life and have it abundantly. He is the bread of life and he offers this bread to us. We therefore feast on him as the eternal food that will not perish, so that we too may not perish. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, hunger, and thirst for him. Draw closer to God as he feeds not only your body, but also your soul by his grace. Gather here at his table 
be filled, and be truly satisfied. Come all ye souls by sin oppressed, ye restless wanderers after rest. Ye poor and maimed and halt and blind, in Christ a hearty welcome find. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.